0: Y'all keep clapping long enough for me to discreetly roll this over. Yeah, there we go. It's discreet. I've, I, I'm, I'm not really a, a sit-to-preach kind of guy, but I, I'm, I'm being completely honest. I've never been this tired in my life. I, there's, there's an 80% chance that I'll make it through this sermon. But that's okay. A shorter sermon's never hurt anyone. Uh, right? Amen. Can I get an amen? Uh, so, yeah. Be patient with me. It might get weird. I've got notes, but I have no idea what I'm actually going to say. Anything could happen. Um, So, my name's Jeremy, and I'm the associate pastor here at Townview. Um, And we just spent a week at Wary and Smyrna with a bunch of teenagers doing just some amazing work and spending some incredible time together. And the theme this year was chasing the dragon confronting cycles of brokenness. Um, and maybe you're familiar with the, the term, the phrase, chasing the dragon. Maybe not as much. It's, it's coming gone in our vocabulary, and right now it's sort of having a, a resurgent with the uh, opioid situation in our country. The phrase chasing the dragon has to do with the cycle of addiction that you get sucked into when you dabble in opioids because you can never get that first high again. It's diminishing returns. It constantly requires more to get less and less, and it forces you deep into addiction very quickly. And that process has been named by those who have been dragged through it as chasing the dragon. And so we, we snag sort of that language to talk about cycles of brokenness in our world and in our life through the week uh, that we were there. But the way we got to the theme, because we, we choose our themes uh, as a group. And so back in February, we sat down on Wednesday night and said, all right, what's the theme for Wary this year? And we got some really great suggestions. And uh, Will Smith, who I believe is still in bed right now, shouted, dragons! So, oh, okay, um, like... What do you mean, dragons? He's like, dragons are cool. And so we put dragons up on the board with like replenish and uh, all these very um, clear, simple Christian ideas that we could pursue for a week together. And because there were more middle school boys there that night than any other demographic, when we voted, dragon it was. (laughs) And so I had from February until last week to come up with something worth saying about dragons. That's not always the easiest thing, <laughs> preaching about dragons. And so we got this idea of confronting cycles of brokenness in our world, of not getting caught up in chasing the dragon and finding where we are chasing dragons in our lives and how to get out Of that cycle, because it's part of being human, right? It's natural, it's normal uh, for us to get wrapped up in things. It's nature. Things get worse. Things left alone decay. Things left to their own devices entropy and die. Everything is tending and trending towards death, chaos, and disorder. That's how things tend to go. And we see this all throughout the Bible that the first people in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, created in the image of God, with God's creativity and freedom bestowed upon them, they have the question, what kind of world are they going to build? What kind of God will they follow? Will they follow God? Will they make themselves their own gods? And we know how that story goes. The first humans take their Dominion and their freedom and their creativity and choose to make gods out of themselves rather than follow their creator. And things go rapidly downhill from there in Genesis. We go from eating fruit to fratricide in one generation. That is a fast escalation um, of the human situation. From eating fruit to fratricide, a few chapters later, we'll meet a dude named Lamech. And Lamech is kind of, he thinks he's a big deal, he's got a lot of wives, he's subjugated a lot of people, he has slaves, he's powerful, he's bad, and he's proud of it. And he's got this poem that he recites, like all tough guys do. He recites a poem that goes something like, if you thought Cain was bad, Lamech is 11 times worse. So we've gone from fruit to fratricide, 11 times worse. And soon the Bible tells us that the whole world is pursuing only violence and evil and corruption and chaos, and God washes it clean with the flood, and we pick someone that God says, this is the best example of a human right here. Noah, you're the man, and we hold our breath. Maybe the humans will get it right in this recreated world, but we know that story too. Noah is subject to the same sin as Lamech and Cain and Adam and all the other humans that we've met. And his family messes it up, and we find ourselves building a city, a place called Babel, where once again the humans say, not creator God, but I will be God. I will build a tower for myself and make a name for myself amongst the heavens. We will be our own gods. And God scatters them, and the story continues again to spiral out of control until we find the people of God, the ones chosen to bring about blessing for the whole world as slaves in Egypt. Whatever you think of the historicity of Genesis, whether you want it to have been actual fact or if you read it as metaphor or myth, however you take it, it doesn't matter because it's true. We see this story, and we can say, yeah... That's how humanity works. The the story of Adam and Eve and the first humans is the story of us, of the loss of innocence and pursuit of things that destroy us and choosing ourselves as our gods rather than the one that created us. Whether or not the story happened, the story is 100% true when we replay it over and over and over in our own lives. But there's this promise that God makes to the first humans that, yes, they're now caught in this cycle, but there's a day coming when God will remake the world and it'll stick. There's someone coming who will let them out of this cycle of sin that they've trapped themselves in because they, they all end up as slaves in Egypt, but the Bible sort of starts to use this Egypt and then Babylon later, these language, these places become metaphor for how all of us have become slaves to sin. And so Jesus shows up on the scene. And he starts declaring the year of the Lord's favor. It's one of the phrases that he uses early in his ministry to describe what's happening. He says, the year of the Lord's favor has come. It's a, a reference to the jubilee Uh, A nice command in the Bible. Hey, youth, how many laws in the Old Testament? 613 613 laws in the Old Testament. Uh, There's one that we know was never, ever followed. There's a command that the people of God have never kept, and that is the jubilee. God says, you will have a jubilee once a generation. Once a generation, debt is forgiven Land goes back to its ancestral family, and if you were born a slave, you're not a slave any longer. Everyone starts over. No one is trapped in the cycle set up by the previous generation. Jesus shows up and says, this is the jubilee. We're going to do it. It's here. The things of the past are no longer going to hold you. You're going to have a fresh start. The other thing he likes to talk about all the time is the kingdom of God. He says that it's, it's here, it's come, it's arrived with me, with Jesus. The kingdom is here. But he also uses different language. He says the kingdom is close. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is coming. The reality of the kingdom of God is this here and not yet mystery of this parallel reality. The kingdom of God is Jesus' way of talking about the world and about being human the way that God intended it. That there's a way things should work. There's a way to be human that isn't wrapped up in this cycle of brokenness and destruction and sin and death. And Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. And he says it's, it's so close. It's present and available to you. It's right alongside the way the world currently is. And every now and then, when we lean in, when we say yes to Jesus in different moments in our lives, the two realities bleed into each other in the kingdom of God Becomes manifest around us. The world for a second is good and right and it makes sense and we find ourselves truly human. And Jesus invites us through the, he uses language, Jubilee and Kingdom, out of the cycles of sin and into a new citizenship in the kingdom. In um, our studies at Wary, we talked about good people whose ministry in the Bible was devastated. By getting caught up in cycles of sin, like the judge Samson, who goes from the one who could deliver Israel to a suicidal murderer and maniac. How many foxes? Someone was mean to him, so he caught 300 foxes, tied them together, set them on fire, and threw them at someone. Like, he's a crazy person. Um, And we talked about King David, the man after God's own heart, who allows himself to get caught up in his own power in kingship and say, you know what? I have a right to some things like your wife and your life and your stuff because I'm the king. And it destroys him and breaks apart the kingdom. We talked about how we can get caught up in cycles of our own making um, or of others' making. We can get caught in things that are not our fault and still be victim to it. We talked about Abraham and his family and the sex slaves that he owns. We talked about how religion itself can become a curse rather than a blessing. How religion can eat us alive if we let it. And how Jesus intervenes on our behalf in his teaching and his leadership. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and good, God loving people said, We need to make sure we get this right. And some of them, some of them are very clear. Thou shalt not murder. That's really easy. You know what that means. You shall keep the Sabbath, remember it, and keep it holy. Well, that one's a little more ambiguous. What's the Sabbath? When is it? How do I know it's going on, and how do I keep it holy? That one's ambiguous. And so in order to make the laws more clear, different groups of God-loving Jews added more laws to the 613. They tried to answer the questions like, how far can you walk on the Sabbath? And exactly how many defects can an animal have and still be considered spotless and something you can give God as an offering? And so the law grows, it bloats, and it becomes this monster that could eat you alive Religion becomes a prison rather than a source of liberation. Uh, Paul, in the New Testament, understands this really well, and he writes about the irony of it in many of his letters. Let's get Romans 7 up on the screen. I want to read that one to you. Paul says, starting in verse 7, What should I say then, that the law is sinful? No, not, not at all. I wouldn't have even known what sin was unless the law had told me The law says, do not want what belongs to other people, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Um, He says, if the law hadn't said that, I wouldn't have known what it is to want what belongs to others. But the commandment gave sin an opportunity, and sin caused me to want all kinds of things that belonged to others. A person can't sin by breaking the law if the law doesn't exist. Before I knew about the law, I was alive. But then the commandment came, and sin came to life, and I died. I found that the commandment that was supposed to bring life actually brought me death. When the commandment gave sin an opportunity, sin tricked me. It used the commandment to put me to death. So the law is holy, the commandment also is holy, and right, and good. Did what is good cause me to die? No, not, not at all. Sin did that. And sin had to be recognized for what it really is. So it used what is good to bring about my death. Because of the commandment, sin became totally sinful. We know that the law is holy, but I am not. I have been sold to be a slave of sin. I don't understand what I do. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do what I hate to do. I do what I do not want. So I agree that the law is good as it is. I am no longer the one who does these things. It is sin living in me that does them. It's infected all of me. I know there's nothing good in my desire when it's controlled by sin. I want to do what's good, but I can't. I don't do the good things I want to do. I keep doing the evil things that I don't want to do. I do what I don't want. But I am really the one who is doing it. And it's sin that's living in me that has caused me to be this way. Here is the law I find working in me. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Deep inside me, I find joy in God's law. I love the law, but I see another law that is controlling me. It fights against the law of my mind. It makes me a prisoner to the law of sin. The wages of sin is death. It always wins. It always works that way. That law controls me. What a terrible failure I am. Who will save me from this sin that brings death to my body? I give thanks to God who has saved me. He saves me through Jesus, our Lord. When Jesus chooses to confront the reality of this gift-turned-prison, how humans take the law and add to it, make it even bigger, make it a bigger thing, when Jesus chooses to confront this, he climbs a hill in front of an audience and delivered a sermon. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says phrases like, You have heard it said, but I say to you several times. For example, he quotes Exodus 20, 13, when in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That's an easy one. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. When Jesus does this five times in chapter 5 alone, he identifies the traditional righteousness He shows us how it spirals out of control into a sinful cycle, and then shows us a way out of that cycle through transforming action. Here's Matthew 5. You've heard said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, a phrase that means something like, you are so stupid that you are utterly worthless is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave it. Drop that offering. Leave it in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled. Then come back and make your gift. Set her matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way there, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. When Jesus confronts this, he identifies the traditional righteousness. He shows us how it works. Don't murder. He identifies how it creates the sinful cycle. But I tell you, don't murder. But if you hate you have committed murder, then shows us how to be free from this cycle through creative and transforming actions. Do not allow anger to fester into hate. When presented with human attempts to understand and frankly manipulate God's law, we we try to justify ourselves through it. But Jesus changes the game. It's not about following rules. It's about following God. Jesus moves us from religious law-keeping to citizenship in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we have freedom to follow Jesus. Not out of fear, not trying to get it right, not afraid of what will happen if we get something wrong But we follow out of a deep love, seeking to serve and to live in the world as ambassadors for this new way of being human. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Matthew 5.17, don't think, this is Jesus talking, that I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill them, to show you the truth behind them to show you what they've been pointing you towards. James two, fourteen 17 says, what, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if anyone claims to have faith but doesn't do anything with it? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without and needs clothes and daily food. If one of you says, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, if you have faith all by itself, if you just believe all the right things, and it doesn't move you to love and action and a new way of being human, that faith is dead. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, there is, The law has no glory. It's good, but it has no glory next to the new way of being human, next to the new covenant. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus intervenes, steps into our cycles of brokenness, he makes a way out. Jesus moves us out of our sinful cycles into real life. Jesus moves us from religious law keeping to citizenship in the kingdom of God in which we have the freedom to follow Jesus, not out of fear, not trying to get everything right, but out of love, seeking to serve and live in the world as ambassadors for an entirely new way of being human. I think that's pretty good news. Amen. At this point in our service, we have a time of response. I'm going to roll this back out of the way. It's kind of like my walker, though. I might need it. We have a time of response. This, is a, this has been a really good morning, and I'm glad y'all are here with us. Maybe in this time today you've, you've heard or felt or you've been moved by something. Something is calling you to respond. Um, maybe it's the music. Maybe you heard a song that you haven't heard in a long time, or maybe you heard something for the first time, and it just hits you. You found some truth in that. Maybe you found some truth and some gospel in a a hug this morning or a smile or some kind words, or you were moved by seeing these students that spent a week working for the sake of others, or you were touched in prayer or in scripture, or you hear the sermon and you think, you know what, I'm caught up in something too. I've allowed myself to become a slave when Jesus has offered me freedom. We're going to sing a song, and this is time for you, To respond to any of that, to to say, yes, God, you are in this place, and I can't deny it, and that requires some time in worship. Maybe you need prayer. You can pray with the people around you. You can come forward. A deacon will chase you and put some hands on you. Maybe you need to say yes uh, for the first time to the kingdom of God. Maybe you're looking for a way out of some sort of brokenness, and you want to say yes to Jesus and transition into citizenship, and new life. The altar is open. We're all here.